Welcome to Worldly, Vox's weekly guide to the most important stories in the world, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network. So any exhausted journalist can tell you this. Life in the Trump era means constant drama and surprise twists that feel like something out of reality TV. But even in this chaotic new normal, Trump's North Korea policy is pretty staggering. For one thing, it keeps changing, radically. This is what he was saying just last September. The United States has great strength and patience. But if it is forced to defend itself or its allies, we will have no choice but to totally destroy North Korea. And this is what he's saying now. We've also started talking to North Korea directly. We have had direct talks at very high levels, extremely high levels. So today we're going to talk about what those changes mean and what those talks might look like. There's a lot to unpack. A surprise visit to North Korea by the director of the CIA, a historic and risky summit, potentially, between Trump and Kim Jong-un, and some of the history and context you need to understand these talks if they do happen. That's why we're going to devote this entire episode to talking about North Korea, Trump, and everything that has been changing around it. So, Jen, let's start with this week. What happened? It's a pretty dramatic change, right? So this meeting we had, Trump was just kind of doing a off-the-schedule press spray, right? And he happens to say, yeah, we're having high-level talks with North Korea. And everyone was kind of stunned and trying to figure out, okay, what does that actually mean, right? Is this like kind of lower, kind of level, normal back-channel communications, which we've actually had um, for a while now? Or is this serious? Like, what does extremely high-level mean? And then just the next day, uh, the Washington Post broke the story that it was literally CIA Director Mike Pompeo, who had flown to Pyongyang and met personally face-to-face with Kim Jong-un. And that's, it's staggering, right? It's the first time anybody that high has met with Kim Jong-un himself. And again, you know, six months ago, we were really scared and seriously for good reason that war could soon break out. I mean, Yochi, you wrote an amazing piece about what that war would look like. And we were talking about pinpoint strikes or bloody nose strikes to kind of bloody the nose of the Kim regime and, and warn him to stop, you know, testing missiles and nuclear weapons. And it was really scary. And then all of a sudden now we have, you know, the CIA director flying personally out to North Korea to meet with the leader. It's a staggering change. Part of what has happened in the Trump White House since September when we were talking about totally destroy till now when we're talking about talks at extremely high levels is a pretty major shift in people. And so you had the people who we thought were moderate, Rex Tillerson, the Secretary of State, and Mr. Charisma. You had H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor, who's kind of seen as a relative moderate, have both been fired, replaced by Mike Pompeo, seen as a hawk, if he's confirmed uh, as Secretary of State, I should say. Um, John Bolton as National Security Advisor, where he and his mustache are both kind of hawkish. And despite that, we are not talking about war. We're not talking about talks. Well, it's important to remember that H.R. McMaster was, by all accounts, one of the major hawks on North Korea inside the Trump administration. Publicly, he talked about how they can't be rationally deterred. They're not like the Soviet Union. They're crazy. And internally, the reports that we were getting were that he was pushing hard for some kind of consideration of military strikes. So though he was perceived as a moderate— The sense that I got was that he was a force for war inside the administration. And it it seems to have flipped. And I think it flipped mostly at the direction of the president and due to some crafty diplomacy by the South Korean leader. Right. I mean, but you also had Tillerson, who was, you know, one of the biggest proponents of, of diplomacy, right? He was the one who was out there trying to actually work out, maybe we could have talks. And meanwhile, Trump is kind of undercutting. And we've talked about this before. You know, Trump tweets out, there's no use in talking to Kim. You know, don't waste your time, Rex. And Rex is like, 
great. I just spent all this time trying to work out talks. Okay, great. Um, but now you have Mike Pompeo, right? And previously, you know, he's been seemingly a little bit more hawkish, right, in his statements before he was even under consideration for Secretary of State. So, you know, he had been asked, do you think the Kim regime is rational? Like, can they be deterred? Can we deal with these people? And he said, yeah, I think they're rational. But I think, you know, Kim's not going to give up snooks. I think, you know, he wants these as a coercive measure to reunify the Korean Peninsula and all this. He didn't, he wasn't the guy who was out there saying like, yeah, I think we should talk to them and, and maybe we can work something out. You know, he, which is, Interesting, right? That it was under essentially Pompeo that he got to go meet with Pyongyang and not under like the Tillerson State Department, right? Pompeo's not at state yet, but he's kind of acting as a sort of de facto state. Right. Although weirdly, he has an office in the State Department, right? Even though he hasn't been confirmed. But there's a lot to the fact that he went, right? Like we've talked before that unlike poor Rex Tillerson fired literally while he was on the toilet, Mike Pompeo is trusted by Donald Trump. The world kind of knows that he speaks for Trump. So when he said Mike Pompeo, there's a message in some ways that even if he's not Secretary of State, he is somebody that Donald Trump trusts. But he brought with him no diplomats from the State Department. He brought with him nobody from the National Security Council. He went just with CIA staff. You know, so exactly what does it mean when you have no diplomats in the way we think of diplomats being part of diplomatic preparations and diplomatic talks? Yeah, so negotiation is not something that you can just do as a hobby. You need to actually know how to interact with foreign leaders and bureaucrats and their own negotiators. You need to know the country really well. And CIA has people who know North Korea exceptionally well. They don't have people who are particularly skilled at official meetings and working and hammering these things out. When you don't have a diplomatic corps trying to solve one of the world's thorniest conflicts, not just the nuclear program, but also the overall decades-long North-South Korea conflict that spurs this entire thing, right? That is a deep divide over what the future of the Korean Peninsula should look like. There are so many different hurdles that you need to jump over and so many different small but hugely important issues that you need to hammer out that without a diplomatic corps, you know, without a diplomatic corps that's well-staffed, it makes me feel very pessimistic about the future of this Trump outreach. So I both completely agree with everything you just said and also completely disagree. So in the sense that I, I, Oof, I think you contain multitudes. I do. I'm I'm an enigma. I, I completely agree that a diplomatic corps is absolutely necessary for all these meetings under any other president but Trump. But I think, honestly, even if you had a fully staffed diplomatic corps who had prepared all these briefings, done all this work, and was there to, like, do the low-level stuff, you would still end up with Trump in the room with Kim. And Trump, you know, you could prepare as many briefings. Here's what we think makes him tick. You know, here's what you can and can't say. Here are the policies we need to work out. Trump's still going to go into that room and say whatever the hell he thinks is right. You know, he he speaks from— from his gut, right? And that's how he reacts. It's, it's just weird that so much of our conversation about, you know, a major international crisis, one that if handled badly could lead to actual war and like a really bad war, hinges on the psychology of Donald Trump and various different like detailed guesses about how he reacts to different people that honestly neither you nor I know. Let's actually move to the talks themselves because yes, like to a degree from the outside, we don't know. And to the degree from the outside, we're all predicting. Trump yesterday said something interesting. He said that if in the run-up to the talks, things didn't sound right, he wouldn't go. And then he said, 
if the talks while he was in the room weren't going well, he would respectfully leave, which was his exact quote. I'd just like to see him practice that. This is how I'm going to practice being respectful and standing up and walking away. But it's interesting to me because, one, just the idea of him actually leaving a meeting seems sort of hard to imagine. But the stakes are high, you know, Zach, as you referenced, but the substance is important and is a little bit tricky because basically what they'd be talking about is a trade, right? And in its simplest form, that trade would be a word we all worry about stumbling over, denuclearization, which we'll talk about in a second, by the North Koreans in exchange for the U.S. lifting sanctions, stopping military drills with South Korea, possibly withdrawing from South Korea, the troops we have there. But the tricky word is denuclearization, right? Because Donald Trump, I think, hears that and hears like, phenomenal. They'll give up all their nukes. This will be great. Problem is, we've all written, you know, Zach, you've written, Jen, I think you've written, I certainly have written, that North Korea has no incentive whatsoever to give up its nukes. And if anything, might say, here's what we'll give you. We'll freeze them. Basically, they may offer the Iran deal. They may say, we'll freeze our program. You can come see it and test it and inspect it. And then the question is, is that enough? And could Donald Trump, who doesn't, certainly doesn't, from what we've seen of him in the past, no nuance, does he get that? And what do we give up for that? Right? That would that would be good, right? It would be better than what we have now if North Korea froze their nuclear and ballistic missile program. That That's a positive. The question is, what do we give on our side for that? And, and is that a fair trade? Or is that something that, you know, will work out? So, you know, if, say, we agree to completely pull out our troops, right, from South Korea, that's probably not a fair trade. Like, that's a massive, massive concession. It's literally what, you know, the Kim regime, not just Kim Jong-un, but, you know, his father have been asking for forever. Like, yeah, you know, we'll stop threatening you if you stop threatening us. Because to be clear, they see and portray the nuclear and ballistic missile program as a protection, as defensive weapons. Now, we look at it and say, you know, they're they're threatening us. They are using this for offensive purposes, right? They want to bomb us. But the way they see it, or at least, you know, the publicly stated, I don't know what's actually in their heads, right? But the way they frame it is, no, you have all these troops. You have this nuclear umbrella. You have U.S. nuclear weapons protecting South Korea and Japan, right? You are threatening us. You do these flyover, you know, nearby military drills and these huge buildups. We see this as potential preparations for an invasion. You know, we know the Korean War is officially not over, and maybe you guys are planning to come in and and do regime change like you did in Iraq. And so it's this kind of protection, right? That's what they had these nukes for. So if they're going to give those up, even if they, I don't mean give them up, even if they freeze it, they're going to want some assurances. And the problem is if they just freeze it and we pull out U.S. troops and then they just go, just kidding, and restart it, well, then what? Well, I want to run with this Iran deal analogy, because in a certain sense, if we could get the equivalent of the Iran deal, that would be a phenomenal win for the United States, right? The Iran deal freezes their program at the nuclear energy stage, right? Which North Korea have them, which is right, which is the difference, right? (laughs) The key difference. If we could get North Korea to a stage where they don't have nuclear weapons anymore and just have an energy program, that would be a tremendous, tremendous victory. Especially if all we had to do was, as in the case of Iran, lift economic sanctions. Right. But North Korea, because they've gotten so much further, is unlikely to agree to such a favorable deal for the West. Right, They would want something more advanced. They would want a promise from the United States not to invade and withdrawal of U.S. troops from South Korea, the end possibly to a U.S.-South Korea military alliance. Like There are all sorts of different conditions they would likely throw in because, as Jen just described, the whole point of this is to guarantee security for them. So they probably wouldn't just want words or even— you know, some more money and cash and access to international markets. Like tangible deliverables, right? Yeah. Literally moving U.S. troops away from the DMZ. I yeah. mean, there's this sort of joke that we all tell and 
people on Twitter tell all the time that it's two erratic, irrational people with weird hair sitting down. Kim Jong-un is not irrational. I mean, this is a guy who's been in power now for years. We'll talk in a second about kind of how we've gotten here and sort of what Kim Jong-un has done. But he is not badly prepared. He's not badly briefed. He's not a moron. And you can look, if you're him, at Libya. You can look at Iraq. Look at every country on the face of the planet which has tried to get nuclear weapons, did not get them, and how weak they were as a result. It's hard for me to imagine he will ever give them up because why would he? I mean, right now, he is a power that the president of the United States is willing to sit down with because he has nukes. Otherwise, he's the leader of an impoverished, reclusive country that, frankly, we don't care that much about. You know, Jen, your point about how these weapons are defensive in nature for them in some ways is fascinating, but they're also offensive in a way that we don't necessarily think about, which is the North Korean constitution talks about how the goal of their government is to reunify all of the peninsula under North Korean control. And the North Korean military doctrine is in a head-to-head fight with South Korea and the U.S., they lose. In a head-to-head fight with South Korea without the U.S., they win. So for them, if they get rid of U.S. troops, plausibly, we go not from like flowers and hosannas and the world is a peaceful place to the possibility of war between North and South is more likely because North feels like they could win. You know, it gets back exactly to the point you were making at the early part of this of just how dangerous the summit is, right? In some ways, like a bad deal is worse than no deal. And there's an equal possibility of both. Right. Because a bad deal, not just in in that way, could set the stage for war, but a bad deal in the sense of negotiated breakdown, like they don't come to an agreement and they're really angry at each other, right? A bad deal making maybe is a better way to put it. That in and of itself could create the conditions for war again. We could go, we could easily return back to the days of Little Rocket Man and Fire and Fury if Trump thinks that Kim Jong-un is trying to trick him or lying to him or he just plain doesn't like him after this meeting, right? It's there are so many different ways that this meeting could go wrong and that the the negotiated outcome could be bad if it's bad on the technical specifications. It could inflame relations between the two countries. It could further sever the United States from South Korea if the U.S. makes a concession that South Korea doesn't like or vice versa. You know, it's just, it's fraught. It's complicated. This is a really, really, really tricky situation. And I have just so little faith that Donald Trump is the man to negotiate it. And I totally agree. But I also want to be careful, you know, not to just be too, like, doom and gloom. The fact that they're sitting down and talking is a, a net positive. Like, they could theoretically sit down one on one, face to face, and not come to a deal but not not come to a deal, right? It could be the first highest level contact ever. And they could sit down and just get to know each other, right? Just have that kind of personal contact. And maybe that's the baseline, right? Maybe that's the start of a longer diplomatic process that does involve theoretically some people at the State Department that Mike Pompeo will hire. Or just at least saying that we've met and giving Kim this kind of recognition that he's always wanted, right? I am a serious world power. The United States recognizes me. You know, we haven't seen all these crazy tests happening in the last month or so, right? We haven't seen a ton of belligerent rhetoric. What we have seen is Kim get on a secret bulletproof train and go meet with the president of China, right? Leave the country for the first time since becoming president, right? And we could see a more positive just interaction, right? The fact that they've met. And it's entirely possible the two could get along, right? I'm not saying that that's great because, you know, Kim's a murderous dictator. 
But it would probably be good for world peace, theoretically, if they could get along and at least be able to open a dialogue. I think that's positive. So why? I mean, in some ways, not why would it be positive, but why did we get here? Why is this happening? I think, Jen, you had uh, a fairly pithy, Jen-esque five-word description of why this was happening. And it was Kim Jong-un got the shit kicked out of him. I think I said he got the shit scared out of him. Yeah, no, no, uh, there was no shit kicking. <laughs> just no shit, shit kicking. Although in Texas, we do some shit kicking. Um, look, I think there are a lot of reasons why Kim has has decided to come to the table, right? And I don't think it's solely one reason or another. I think it's an entire host of factors. And the fact that, you know, he has a viable nuclear threat to the United States is definitely a big part of that. Um, but I do also think part of it is that he realized that shit, maybe the Americans are serious about a military strike. So um, we had a piece on Vox.com recently with an expert explaining why Kim decided to meet with Xi Jinping in China and why he's decided to meet with Donald Trump. And a huge part of it was, I think that he's really scared that there could be actual military strikes. And, you know, that's not me speaking. That's a North Korea expert, Oriana Schuyler Mastro, saying this. So, um, and there was a, recently there was a, the highest level North Korean defector that's ever come out of the country, um, just recently was giving interviews saying, yeah, they're, they're terrified. Like, they think that, holy shit, you know, the Americans are actually like massing and planning. And, you know, there have been kind of questions about the Trump madman theory, right? Like the fact that Trump is erratic and is openly tweeting, like, you know, we will destroy you, little rocket man. And it, all this kind of really aggressive stuff, like, shit, maybe maybe the Americans might actually do something this time, right? Because we've never really responded forcefully militarily when they've fucked around and done stuff. This time, maybe they will. And I think that's definitely a piece of it. I don't think that's the only explanation. Yeah, this is an issue on which uh, the North Korea expert community is, is sharply divided. Right. Right. And I, I tend to side with the skeptics uh, of the position Jen was just outlining. To put it more boringly, I don't think Kim Jong-un is scared. I think he is canny. He's in a position of strength right now relative to where he's been in the past. And for the past several years, he has only used one page of the North Korean playbook, which is aggression. He has tested weapons. He has done provocations, fired on South Korean ships and fired artillery at an island, right? Like there's lots of stuff that he's done to try to antagonize and make himself look scary. But the North Koreans always, or at least in the post-Cold War world, have done this as a kind of two-step. Right? They scare people, but then they come to the table and they demand concessions in exchange for no longer being scary. Right? And Kim hasn't run the second part of the playbook. Now, I think that's what he's doing with this outreach to South Korea and outreach to the United States. He's like, look, we're stronger than ever. I've shown that I can be scary, and now I want you guys to give me something. And another important thing to consider is that every North Korean leader has offered to have direct meetings with the United States. Oh, yeah. Right? They always want to sit down. That's that. That's part of what they do. They, they view a meeting with the American president itself as a victory. Right. It, it's a sign for them that they are a world power yeah. taken seriously by the U.S. I mean, part of why this podcast has been fun, I mean, it, it kind of grew up from the three of us sitting near each other in the Vox newsroom and occasionally yelling at each other. The great man or great person theory of history can often be misused. But I do think in Donald Trump's own mind, he is a great man of history. And for me, I, I think it comes down to ego. And it may not be a bad thing. And maybe that the ego, Jen, as you were saying before, they're in the same room. They have some chemistry. Regardless of how they got there and something happens that's positive. But Trump, whenever he talks about this, there's a point he makes, which I think is revealing. He talks about how other presidents tried to deal with North Korea and they all failed. Other presidents thought about getting together and meeting and they never did. And I'm going to do it. 
right? I, I think that he genuinely, genuinely, genuinely believes in his core and deep in whatever heart he has that he is different, right? That he could do something no other president either was willing to do or had the guts to do. Art he'd of the probably deal. be right. I mean, he'd be he'd be cruder. He would say they didn't have the balls to do it. And he does, right? So like maybe the answer is it's a combination of all three. You spend a lot of time and money getting people to your websites, but how do you know they'll actually become customers? Intercom can help. It's the live chat platform that converts visitors to customers and drives revenue for your business. See how Intercom can grow your company at intercom.com slash growth. Again, intercom.com slash growth. Worldly tries to explain the big events of the week, but there's a lot more you need to know if you really want to understand the world. The Great Courses Plus is a streaming service that was created for people just like you, people who want to learn more. So if you haven't signed up yet, you should. You can learn from the world's best professors and experts about virtually any topic that interests you. World history, science, art, music, travel, photography, and a lot more. There's unlimited access to thousands of fascinating lectures, and you can watch them from anywhere or listen through the Great Courses Plus app. So here's one example. It's a new course on the great trials of world history. It's a fascinating one that talks about the Scopes Monkey Trial, the trials of Socrates, Oscar Wilde, the Chicago Eight, to name just a few. It's a powerful look into how these legal proceedings were catalysts for change and how they continue to be tools for understanding history. I know you'll get a lot out of The Great Courses Plus, and right now they're giving our listeners a free trial with unlimited access to their entire library if you go to our special URL. So here's how you start exploring and start learning today. You sign up at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. Thegreatcoursesplus.com slash worldly. It's also worth remembering that as we're talking about sort of the Trump and U.S. side of it, there's the South Korea side of it, right? If there's a war that comes, it's not U.S. troops are going to be on the front lines. It's going to be South Korean troops. It's not going to be Washington devastated. It's going to be Seoul. And I think trying to understand a bit of what South Koreans think is vital. Thankfully, we have a way of doing that. Our producer, Jillian Weinberger, was in South Korea for the Olympics. She had a chance to talk to a lot of South Koreans while she was there. And what she heard was kind of a generational gap. You had older South Koreans who were more optimistic, more in favor of, of reunification, younger South Koreans, less so. So this is one 65-year-old man she met at a hockey game, Kim Won Jae. She was talking to him through a translator, and this is a bit of what she heard. He was born in just before the Korean War. So he, he thinks that we call North Korean Korean and South Korean Korean. We are Koreans. That's the kind of older Korean point of view. The younger Korean point of view is slightly different. According to the Washington Post, there was a think tank that ran a poll in Seoul that found out only 14% of South Koreans in their 20s wanted reunification. In their 60s, that number went up to 63%. So it's a huge gap. And I wonder if we could perhaps close there. I mean, why? Why do we think that older Koreans think, hey, this is a good idea, it could happen, and younger Koreans think, hell no? I mean, it is a generational gap, but it's also— you know, a political divide as well. So, you know, the previous president of South Korea, um, the previous president was way more hawkish, right? Way, you know, less willing to talk to the North Koreans. Whereas the current president of South Korea, Moon Jae-in, is the child of North Korean refugees, right? People who fled from North Korea to South Korea. And he has taken a much more kind of dovish, much more open approach 
you know, wanting to talk to North Korea, wanting to figure out a peaceful resolution to this. Um, but you also have the fact that, you know, younger North Koreans have lived under a a much more robust, rapidly advancing nuclear program, whereas older North Koreans, you know, remember earlier days when it was not that kind of looming, horrifying threat, right? I mean, the, the Korean War did happen. But there is this sense among older Koreans that, you know, we're all one, like you heard in that clip. This is a common kind of notion that we were, used to all be one people. We all speak the same language. We've been divided, brothers and sisters. And there are families who are literally divided by, you know, the Korean War and who haven't seen their relatives and their descendants, right? So it's understandable. But younger South Koreans haven't really experienced that and have grown up under this kind of horrific kind of nuclear, looming nuclear threat. So it, it makes a lot of sense. Now, political identity is, is a complicated thing, um, and it gets formed out of a combination of history and personal experiences. At least good data that we have from political scientists about the United States suggests that people really respond sometimes negatively, actually, to the, the person who was president in their youth, right? And that there's a really key point in your development that helps shape your identity. The conditions overall, the overall conditions that you experience when you're really developing your sense of self— play a really important role in how you understand the world. And if your experience of the world with North Korea is, as Jen describes, a threatening power, one that not just has nuclear weapons, but for your entire existence has been, you know, on the brink of some kind of war with you, why on earth would you think that these are people that you can compromise with? It just, it doesn't make any sense if that's your experience of the world. And why would you want to? You have a perfectly lovely life in South Korea. It's a great country. And North Korea is impoverished and it would be really complicated and difficult and expensive to reunify. So if you're a young South Korean, what does this other country mean to you? I think that's a, a great frame and a great way to end it. You know, the curse about living in interesting times, the cliched curse I mean, this was a week we could have talked about Nikki Haley fighting with Donald Trump over Russia sanctions. We could have talked about airstrikes on Syria. We could have talked about Donald Trump potentially firing Rod Rosenstein and Bob Mueller. I mean, there's that much happening. The reason I mention all of it is Vox.com, beyond this amazing podcast, has others. Today Explained in particular has talked about the Nikki Haley Russia flap with, with one brilliant Zach Beecham. Uh, our friend Alex Ward has been on to talk about the airstrikes on Syria. So you can learn a lot about this, not just with us, although hopefully with us, but also with other Vox.com podcasts. We want to thank, as always, our producers, Jillian Weinberger, Bird Pinkerton, our social media manager, Julie Bogan. Email us, worldlyatvox.com. You could tweet us, hashtag worldlypodcast. Come find us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud. Rate, review, subscribe. We'll be with all of you again next week. Bye. See ya. See ya.